Good morning. How's everybody doing today? So, here we are. Uh, Pastor Ray asked me to teach this weekend, and I said, you know, Ray, what have you got for me? Give me something nice and easy that I can just slide in there and knock out of the park, and it'll be like, yeah, yeah. So, our topic this morning... But we are going to cover it, and if I can, let me just be frank with you for a moment. Sometimes I don't want to be Luke. Right now I'm Frank. And uh, as Frank, I've read, done a lot of reading in my life, and I actually did read a book once that had the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Does anybody know what the answer was? 42. 42. That's the answer. Life, the universe, and everything, the answer is 42. We'll see you guys next week. No. That's, that's uh, actually from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I just want you to know that if that upset you, that was Frank. That wasn't me. That was Frank. The good stuff is me. We'll just keep it at that. But we are going to... Um, deal with the situation. I am going to read our scriptures first. We, are, we have three, three verses that we're going to use to find the meaning of life here. It is Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, our summary statement, um, this is my third time teaching this. I have not written this down, and I've had to read it off of here every time. So we're going to read it here. Our summary statement, in the world, we are promised happiness and satisfaction in every created thing, and only in Jesus do we have a God who gave up everything to save us, and only putting him first in our life can we find ultimate satisfaction and purpose. So, our purpose in life is to glorify God, and God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Now, I'm going to briefly veer off onto another scripture, and we're going to look at something that summarizes everything that we've been talking about. And so, in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, uh, Ecclesiastes is his, like, take on life, right? So, if you uh, don't remember... Um, Solomon, God appeared to Solomon in a dream, and God told him, ask me for what you want. And Solomon said, give me wisdom to be a good ruler and to lead a good life. And so the Lord said, because you didn't ask for wealth or money or power, I'm going to give you all those things and wisdom. And so in Ecclesiastes, this is written at the end of Solomon's life, and he's kind of summarizing what he's discovered about life. And so he tests himself with two things. In Ecclesiastes 1, verse 13, he says, And I applied to my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And so he sought out wisdom to understand everything that can be understood. And that's where we get the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs was largely written by Solomon. And through his search of wisdom, he wrote the book of Proverbs. But he doesn't find the satisfaction that he was looking for in seeking out wisdom. So, in Ecclesiastes 2.1, he said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. Now, both of these things, he's trying to fill his heart with something. And it's, it's, it's specific that he says that. What does Jeremiah 17.9 say about the heart? It says, the heart is deceitful 
above all things. And our heart promises us, if you can just have this, if you can just have that job, if you can just have the house, if you can just have the relationship, if you can just have that waffle that you saw. It could have been a good waffle. Um, But what conclusion does Solomon come to? At the very end of Ecclesiastes, after all this stuff, he says, the end of the matter, this is Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So how does Solomon sum up life? Fear God and keep his commandments. And so we look at that and we say, great. So our purpose in life is God is this big thing far away that I need to cower and be afraid of. And if I don't follow his rules, he's like a kid with a magnifying glass and I'm the little ant. Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what we're saying. So we're going to look at what Solomon says here, right? So this word fear, when it says fear God, we don't have a good English translation for this word. And so what this word means is this awe and wonder of something. It's like it's, it's, it's this thing that is so big and so wonderful. And so if you have ever gone out to um, out past the city limits and looked up at the stars, and you just look up and you see billions and billions of stars out there. Or if you go out early in the morning and you watch the sunrise and you just see the beauty of something. There was, um, you know, they have the Hubble telescope, they have the new telescope coming, but they've had the Hubble telescope for a long time, and they looked at this one patch of the sky, this one patch where it was darker than all the rest of the sky. And so they took the Hubble telescope and they pointed it at this dark patch of the sky. And just as as powerful as they could make the Hubble telescope look at that, and what came back were these images, these fuzzy white orbs. And what these fuzzy white orbs, each one of them was an entire galaxy. So as far as man was able to see, when he looked into the distance to, the, to, to our best effort, there were galaxies so far out there that we didn't even know existed. This is the God that, that Solomon knew, the God who created everything. And he said, this is awe and wonder And when I stand myself next to that God, I am nothing. So it's not this fear like you need to be afraid of what God's going to do. It is when you behold God, you think, what is this? And so I encountered this once on, on, on such a small scale compared to what God is. But about 18 years ago, I was in India for work. And... We went to this nature preserve, and they let us go around back to where the animals are. And so if you've ever been to the Phoenix Zoo and you go to the lion encounter, right? It's that big round thing, and you stand down, and you look down there, and you see the lion. But in the back of the lion enclosure is this little door that opens, and the lion walks through there. And so around back behind there, that's where they let us go. So not, not at the Phoenix Zoo, but at this, at this uh, nature preserve in India. <laughs> And I stood next to this lion about as close as I am to this table. And this lion was like half starved and, you know, not well taken care of. Sorry, could you say that? Quiet, Siri. Um, so this, this lion, um, let's just take that off. We don't need any interruptions. Um, so this, this lion, right, this half-starved lion, when I looked at this lion, I was in awe when I saw this thing. Because here's what happened next. We were standing next to the lion cage, and I turned to talk to the guy next to me, and this lion jumped up and pounced on the cage. And never in my life have I been happier to have inch-thick steel bars between me and something else. This lion, like if I was in the same room as this lion and there was, no, there was no cage separating us, I might as well just lay down on the ground and pour some relish on myself 
and maybe hope that he doesn't like pickles because there was no comparison. This lion would eat me. I would not outrun him. I would not overpower him. I would die. And so when I looked at this lion and I thought, this thing is awesome, and I am terrified of it, right? And that was, that's just like a glimpse of what it is to stand before God and see this God that created everything, right? So, so the first thing that he says, fear God, and that's to know God, know who God is. And the next thing he says, keep his commandments, right? And you think, oh, Right, so rules to follow. Christianity is just like everything else. You give me a set of rules, and if I'm good, I'm go to heaven. But when Jesus came and a, a, a Pharisee or a lawyer came up to him, and they said, how do we get to heaven? And Jesus said, how do you summarize the law? And he said, you summarize the law in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the whole of the law. So what does is, what is God command us to do? And the first one, the first one really encompasses the fear of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so when Jesus came, he, he, he was talking to his disciples in the upper room, and he said, this other command I give you, love others as I have loved you. And what was Jesus doing when he told them this? Does anybody know? He was washing their feet, right? I don't want to touch anybody's feet now. But, but this was back in the biblical times. They all wore sandals and they walked everywhere. I mean, you think your feet are crusty. Theirs were so much worse than ours. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to touch anybody. I don't, that's why I'm not a nurse, because I don't want to touch things. I don't want to, you know... That's, I'm, I am happy for those who love to do that, so I don't. And this was Jesus doing the lowliest thing. Like when, if you had servants back then, they were the ones that washed your feet because it was the lowliest job that nobody wanted to do. And so Jesus gives us the example, be like me. So, the, so literally, literally, the God who created everything, who created galaxies that are barely visible to us, came down and washed their feet. So where's the disconnect with, with us here, right? If you ask most Americans if they're going to heaven, they will tell you, yeah. And why will they tell you that? Because I'm basically a good person. So, you know, if you, when, when salvation is presented to somebody, a lot of people will say, yeah, that's great if I was a murderer or if I was a thief or if I lived a bad life, but I'm basically a good person. And so, you know, salvation is good for you. I'm glad whatever you did to, to, to warrant salvation, you know, I don't want to know about it. But if you press them, most people will admit that, they have replaced God with something. They are still seeking salvation. They're just not seeking it in Jesus. They've, they, whatever they've put in there, you know, if, so Young Oceans is a band, and they have this song, and it's uh, called You Are the Fullness, and it says, why would I drink the world's bitter wine, my Lord? Why do I feast on seeds of desire, my Lord, when I know that you are the fullness? And so if I put Jesus in that number one spot, I'm not going to covet what my neighbor has. I'm not going to hate them. I'm not going to yearn for anything else because I have that number one spot fulfilled and it's, it's when I let those other things slide in, whether it's power or financial ability or, or whatever I've let slip in, most people will say, if I have this, then my life will have meaning. Or if I have that, then my life will have meant something. So, so if anybody ends up having to leave early, you've heard now 
the meaning of life, right? So now I'm going to justify everything that I've said by looking at our text. So prior to this in Colossians, um, he's done like his welcome and his greeting, and I'm praying for you, and I'm happy to hear about you. And what comes after these three verses is he's going to talk about Jesus as the head of the church. And so in these three verses, he's going to establish why Jesus is better than everything and why, as our sermon series is called, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So everything is encompassed in these three verses, right? So our first verse, we're going to look at the first half of verse 15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God. And so I want to rephrase that to you. And that's our first fill in the blank. He is the God that came down to save us. He's the God that came down to save us. It says that he's the image of the invisible God. Prior to this, God was up in heaven. We had some of his law but that was about it. We had, we had messages from prophets, and we had some of his law, but that wasn't enough. He was the God who came down. So in every other religion, it is a series of steps that I'm going to try to get back to God. I'm going to try to earn my way back to God. And the entire Old Testament is a long story of a people attempting over and over and over again and failing over and over and over again to get back to God. And the law itself, the law was not given to us to say, hey, here's how you get back to God, because God knew we couldn't do it. The law was given so that we would know how far away we actually are to know that I will never be able to work and achieve my way back there. And so, so let's look at, in the beginning, there was Eden. And in Eden, there was the garden. And in the garden, there was the tree of good and evil. And that was where God met and dwelt with man. And so, in uh, when they were given the... Uh, diagrams or the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, for the temple, when they were given instructions on how to build the temple, what did the temple look like? It looked like the courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And the holy of holies is where God dwelt. And only the priest could go into the holy place, and only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. And so this temple was like a recreation of the garden, where everything was as it was intended to be, where we could just walk into the Holy of Holies and be with God. And so this temple is a recreation, except that before the high priest could go into the Holy of Holy place, he had to do all these sacrifices, sacrifice for the people, sacrifice for himself, so that he could become clean enough to go in there. And even once he went in there, they would put bells on his robe and tie a rope to his ankle so that if after a certain amount of time they didn't hear anything, then the assumption was, okay, he messed up and he's dead. And so we're going to take this rope and pull him back out because we're not going in because we'll just, then they'll just have to drag two of us out instead of the one, right? So there's this there is this separation between God and us. And, and so he's, he, he's, giving this, he's giving this summary of Jesus, and he starts with, he is the God that came to save us. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt with man. And so our next fill in the blank is he makes a way when there is no way. And it, it feels like, Maybe it doesn't feel like this to you, but in my life, I felt like I've come up over and over again in between two points that I cannot get past on my own. And over and over in the Bible, we see that Abraham was told, I'm going to make a great people out of you. Now take your son and sacrifice him. Or the, the uh, Israelites come out of Egypt and they stand between the sea and the Egyptian army and there's no way out of it. And so it is this reminder over and over of God bringing us to a place where we must rely upon him because he is the only way. 
Okay, so the second half of uh, verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, you're filling the blank. He is the inheritor of all creation. Now, this is an important distinction that we're going to make here because if I read the text as it sits, if I just take that text, and in fact, I have a, um, I have a sentence up here. Now, I want you to, in your mind, silently read this sentence, and I want you to tell me what you think it says. Just take whatever meaning you want from that. It's not really a trick. I just want you to take what meaning you want from that. Now, I'm going to read that text to you, and you tell me if me and you are saying the same thing. I didn't say he stole the money. Or 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 I didn't say he stole the money. Right? I just told you five different things from the same sentence. And so if we take this sentence as it is, one single sentence by itself, I can imply whatever meaning I want to that. But the very next sentence after that says, for by him all things were created. All right, so if we're taking it, okay, so let me clarify. Let me, let me jump back real quick. So it says he's the firstborn, but what is that talking about? It's talking about a position, not that he was literally born. And it, it's a, it's a, so if we, look for, if we look at other things, you know, you're like, okay, Luke, well, you're just implying your own meaning on it. Okay, let me give you a couple examples. I mean, one, it says that the very next thing it says is, for by him all things were created. So that would, if we were to take that logic, that would be like me and Amanda, we get married and we have Nathan. And then Nathan grows up and Nathan births out faith. It's kind of an odd series of events, right? Right? God didn't birth out Jesus, and then Jesus birthed out everything else. It's a position, and it's a title. And so, if you look at the Old Testament, or how land was passed, if a girl was born first, she wasn't in the position of the firstborn. In fact, if you had four girls, and then a fifth one who was a boy, he was the firstborn, because that was how land was passed, and so he held the position of the firstborn. Look at Jacob and Esau. When Esau came in, he sold his position of the firstborn, and Jacob held that position at that point. So why am I, why am I going off on this rabbit trail? I'll tell you why I'm going on this rabbit trail. This specific sentence is the primary justification of Jehovah's Witnesses to say Jesus is not God. He was born and became a God. And so we have to be able to, we have to, be able to know the context of something, and, and we have to know, so if somebody says something to us, and they say, you know, Jesus, look at this sentence. It says right there, Jesus was the firstborn. And so we have to know enough to be able to like, well, let me go and look at that. Let me go and examine that and see, is that really what that says? And so Mormons, and, and I, I, I'm not trying to dump on other religions here, right? Mormons will say, look, I'm a Christian. I believe the same thing as you do. I believe that God is a loving father. Except that what Mormonism has done is they've taken Jesus and they've removed his deity. And so what Mormons believe is that we were all spiritual beings in the beginning. We were spiritual be beings with God in the beginning. And so God didn't really create us. And they have, if, if you ask them, uh, my son used to work with, with several Mormons, and so he would talk to them about this. And, and they will say, you know, if you ask them something that doesn't really make sense from the Bible, they will say, well, look to the further clarification by Joseph Smith. And so you have the Book of Mormon to clarify things. And you have two other books to clarify things. And you actually have another version of the Bible which was translated by Joseph Smith I mean, he didn't really translate it. He just took it and kind of changed some problematic areas. Um, and so, why is this important? Paul says, 
if anybody, even if it's me, if anybody comes to you and preaches to you a different gospel than what you heard from Jesus, if an angel himself appears to you and preaches a different gospel than Jesus, then you disregard what they said. Now, Joseph Smith said he was visited by an angel and revealed another truth. Maybe something did appear to him. I don't know. I wasn't there. But if it's different than the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, then it's not the truth. Okay, moving on. Um, verse 16, the first half of verse 16. He cre- uh, let me read the actual verse. Okay, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So he goes through a long list there. So our next fill in the blank is he created everything visible and invisible. Why, why visible and invisible? You know, let me, let me ask you this. Who created linear algebra? Who created physics? Who created gravity? Right? We, we, we kind of think of, we, when we look at God, we think of, oh, yes, God created everything and he saved us. But no, God is a God of order and everything works the way it does because he created it, visible and invisible. And so, you know, when we look at the things that we covet, we think, oh, well, I don't need money or I don't need a fancy house or I don't need a car. But maybe that's not where our coveting lies. Maybe we crave security or we trust our savings account, or our ability to handle things. We think, you know, I'm young and strong and smart, and I can pretty much handle whatever comes at me. And so where is my trust at that point? Has it, is it still in God, or am I just trusting on my own abilities here? Romans 13, 1 says, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so we are a world all about politics right now, right? And if the guy I voted for doesn't get in, then the country is doomed. Except that God created all authority. God created all power. Is this person who I don't like and who I don't agree with bigger than God? Am I so worried about what they're going to do that I think God can't handle that? God created everything visible and invisible. And so our next fill in the blank, when you, when you think that out, everything pales in comparison to God. When I stood, you know, if, you, if you've never been out there, then sometimes we have a, we have a camping trip um, that, that we're going to start up every year here at DBCC. So if you've never been camping and you have any desire, go. And so one year we went, and about 2 in the morning, got up to go to the bathroom, went outside, and you look at the stars when there is no other light around, and it is dizzying. I mean, you look up, and you think, I'm going to fall over looking at all this stuff. This is all the stuff that God created. And so, Okay, where am I going with that? Let me get back on track here. Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah sees a vision of God. And so I'm going to sum up the first five verses for you. He saw God on the throne. He saw the seraphim flying around him. And he saw heaven and the seraphim crying out saying, holy, holy, holy. And it says, when God spoke, the foundations of heaven shook. And what is the first thing out of Isaiah's mouth when he sees this? He says, woe is me, I am lost. You know, you go and you look at something so majestic, you like, it is, when you think about these other galaxies that they saw, those galaxies have billions of stars in them. Billions upon billions upon billions of stars that God just placed in the night sky. When he saw God, he said, woe is me, so uh, uh, several months back, um, Pastor Ray preached on when the, when the Roman guards came to arrest Jesus, and they were like, and Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus says, I am he. 
And so the same language that he uses to say this is the same language when Moses was going to go before Pharaoh, and he said, who am I going to say sent me? And God said, you tell them I am sent you. And that's, that's the name that Jesus has used here. And what it says is the guards literally fell back onto the ground when Jesus said, I am this is God manifest in flesh, and he said, I am. And just from the power of those words, they literally fell back onto the ground. Isaiah goes on, he says, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There is nothing on heaven, on earth, created that compares to God. All right? So now, this next verse is where we get the title, The Meaning of Life. It's actually the second half of verse 16. It says, all things were created through him and for him. And so your next fill in the blank is, all things were created for him. So, Revelation 11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And the King James Version of that says, "It For your pleasure they are. For your pleasure they are. When God looked at creation, he stepped back and he said, This is is good. This is good. That's what he said when he stepped back and looked at creation. If you have ever made something or written something or sang something or drew something and you thought, this is, this is really good what I made here. I'm gonna, or maybe you bought a picture that somebody else made. You're like, I'm going to hang this on the wall because I love this picture so much. I want to look at it every day. Or maybe your kids brought something home, and it was, a, it was a picture of whatever, and you're like, this is, I love this. I'm going to hang this on the fridge so that I can look at it every day. That is what you are to God. When God created all of creation, he said, this is good. I want to look at this. This is what I have made. What does God think about you? He looks at you, and he says, this is good. You were created for him. By his pleasure, everything exists. And so, we've heard this saying before, what does it mean that God is most pleased in us when we are most satisfied in him? If we're made for God, how is God satisfied in us? In Hosea 6, 6, it says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And in 1 Samuel 15, 22, uh, Samuel had told uh, Saul, who was king, he said, I want you to go into this city. I want you to wipe everything out, every animal, everything. And so when, Saul, when, uh, Saul, when uh, Samuel, when he comes back the next day, he says, Saul, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? Because I'm pretty sure what God spoke to you was to wipe everything out. And and uh, Samuel said, because what, what Saul said was, you know, look, I, I saw it, but I saw these sheep and these goats and these cattle. They were good things, and I, I, I want to bring them back, and I'm going to offer an offering to God. And Samuel says to him, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Right? Samuel was like, or Saul was like, you know, hey, God, I know you told me to do this, but I saw this, and it was really good, so I, I just made an audible, and I did this instead. But, you know, don't worry. I'm going to give you a sacrifice. We're going to take care of this. It'll all be good, God. I'm going I'm to clear this up. You know, I, I got your money next week, God. But the thing is, and, and this is your next fill in the blank, God wants us, not what we can offer, right? So, Let's, let's go back to that example of, like, your children bringing something home. You're like, they're, like, three or four years old. They bring home this picture, and they're like, look, Mom, look what I drew. And you're like, sweetie, that is the best horse I've ever seen. And they're like, it's a car. 
And you're like, I love it. I love your little car horse, right? But that is like us trying to bring something to God. Look, God, look what I made. But what does it say? It says, all we have to offer God is like filthy rags. That's like, God, look, I've worked all week and I've brought you my laundry. All I have to offer God, my filthy rags, right? That's, that's like what we're trying to bring God. We're like, we're trying to earn our way back. And we're like, look, God, look at this thing that I got. And you're like, it's just a big steaming pile of something. And I want you to get mad at me, so I'm going to tell you what it is, but it's steaming. Right? That's, that's what we're, we're trying to offer God something. Like, what does God need that we have? God created galaxies that we can barely even see. And I'd be like, look, God, look what I've done for you. And he's like, great. Thanks so much. I couldn't have done that on my own. All right, so the last thing, the last thing he says, so he starts this off with saying, God is the God who came to save us. And he ends it with this. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So your next fill in the blank is he holds everything together. And so, so what do I mean by this? What, how, how does he hold everything together? Back to Revelations 4.11, it says, By your will they existed. In Psalms, it says that I go to sleep at night and I awake in the morning because you sustain me through the night. We exist, everything exists, every, every beautiful thing that we have that we can create exists by the will of God. He literally holds everything together. Without him, there is nothing. And that's important because when sin entered the world and we were ripped away from him and a wall of sin came between us, and going back to the beginning, He's the God that came to save us. We can only get to heaven. We can only find salvation through him. That's your last, I think that's your last. That's your last fill in the blank. We can only get to heaven through him. And so it's not just, it's not just our souls that God came to save. You know, sometimes we lose sight of this, but literally God is gonna restore all of creation. From the time we are born our bodies start falling apart. And anybody who is probably over 30 knows this. When you, get out of, when you start making noises, when you get up from sitting down, you know this. You're like, oh. If you ever woke up and your neck hurts from sleeping, that's, that's when the rest is supposed to happen. Why does my neck hurt now? Laying on a pillow. Because all of creation is suffering, all of creation. And so in Isaiah, in, in chapter 11, he's, he's prophesying about when Jesus comes back. And this is what he says. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the fattened calf and the lion will lie down together. Now, they lie down together now, but only one of them gets back up. But God is going to restore all things. God is going to bring everything back to the way it's supposed to be. In, in that same chapter, it says, The child shall play over the hole of a cobra. That's a pretty, you know, we're not like out in our yard going, Kids, kids, come here, I found a cobra hole. Let's climb down in it. Let's see what happens. What Name the cobra, right? That's what... It's, it's nonsense. We're not going to do that because we live in a fallen world, but that's not the world that God created, and he's coming back to make it right. He's coming back to make everything right. Death, pain, suffering, despair, it entered the world through our sin, and Jesus will restore it all. That is our hope and our glory, that Jesus is coming back to make it right. Revelation 21, 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. What is our purpose in life? It is to day by day become more like Him until He comes back or calls us home. 
I went to a funeral yesterday um, for somebody who, who used to volunteer in the, in the youth department here. I, I worked with him here for four years or so. And if, if, if you were to look at David's life, if the world were to write a eulogy for David, it would say something like, here's David, he had three girls, he worked at QT for 11 years, and then he died in a head-on collision. And it's terribly sad because, you know, his girls are going to grow up without him, and he never really had a chance to do anything with his life. But I will tell you this. For a good hour and a half, there were, at this funeral, there were two to three hundred people. And one by one, they got up and said, David made my faith stronger by his attitude. He helped me in this way, and I know Jesus better because it. David wanted to be the best father that he could be to his girls. And so he would paint their nails. He learned how to paint nails, and he would do their hair. And one time they were going to a wedding, and when Christine was too tired from getting the girls ready, she said, I just, I'm too tired to do my hair, and I'm just going to go like this. And so David pulled up a YouTube video about how to curl and blow-dry hair, and he curled and blow-dried his wife's hair. And I didn't know this, but his dad was there, and he said they had some type of dance. I don't remember exactly what he called it, but they had some type of dance for... Um, for disabled people. And so David went and helped. And how did David help? He went in the men's room and helped them put on their suits and helped them put on their jackets to, to, give, to give dignity to somebody who otherwise might not have it. When he did the act of Jesus washing people's feet. We think, oh, you know, I don't want to deal with those people. I don't want to, you know, when I, when we drive here and you, and you drive past the QT on, on Bell Road there, and you see people there sleeping on the bench, doing drugs, my heart breaks for these people. And I don't want to see them as a problem. I want to see them as God sees them because I know I was a problem. And I don't ever want to give up on somebody else because then I'm saying there's a line where I can't be, where I can't get past, and I never want to be that. You know, David at his funeral, if you were to stand David up next to the richest person in this country, and say, look at this person. They have this charity. They've given hundreds of millions of dollars. They've built this. They've made this great company. That's like when Jesus stood there and saw the rich man and the widow giving their tithes and offerings. And he said, you know what? That rich man made a big show and gave all this money, and it cost him nothing. David, he wasn't materially wealthy he provided for his family, and he gave his time because that's what he had. He served in the youth. He would take my son because my son loved this show, and he told David about this show, and David was so excited for him. He would take him. He, David would work 8 to 10 hours at QT, and then he'd come over and he'd pick up Nathan, and they'd go and watch this show. And he, they would watch it for a couple hours till David was like struggling to stay awake. But he knew it was important to Nathan. And he wanted to be there with him because it was important to him. If I can stand before God and say that I was the light of Christ for somebody, for anybody, then my life will have had meaning. I could build the greatest company in the world. I could have all the wealth. I could build the greatest, the greatest foundation. If I didn't bring anybody closer to Jesus, if I didn't shine the light of Christ onto them, then it was nothing. 
It was nothing. How do we have... When we say, what's the meaning of life? We don't really mean, what's the meaning of life? We mean, how does my life have meaning? We mean, what can I do so that my life isn't wasted? David's life was not wasted. And the hundreds of people that he interacted with show that because they knew Christ better because of him. What kind of God do we serve? I I heard this story a long time ago. I don't even remember where I heard it. I know it's old because it involves trains and letters. So there there was this older gentleman on a train, and he saw this young man, and the young man was, like, very nervous, and he kept looking out the window, and he went over to him, and he said, are, are you okay? Is everything all right? And the young man said, it's been several years since I've been home, and I left in a big fight with my dad, and we've, I've not spoken to them since, and I'm tired, and I want to go home, and I want that relationship back. And so he sent a letter to his mom, and he said, Mom, will you ask dad if it's okay if I come home? And I'll be on the three o'clock train on such and such date. And when the train comes around the mountain, you can see their house. And so if dad says it's okay for me to come home, just hang a white sheet on the clothesline and then I'll know that dad says it's okay. And so so he says, and, and you know what, I, I don't think I can look. Will you watch for me and just tell me if any of the houses have a white sheet? And so he says, yeah, I'll do that for you. So they come around the mountain, and he says, he said, son, I, I, I think you want to look at this. And so they came around the mountain, and he looks, and the clothesline is spread across the yard, and there's white sheets all across the clothesline. And every single window in the house is open, and there's white sheets hanging from outside the, outside the windows. And along the back wall of the fence, there's white sheets all along it. What kind of a God do we serve? Is a God that says, yes, I want you back. Yes, I created you, and you are a good thing, and you have value because I love you. And when there was no way to get back, I came down and I paid the price to death. I suffered so that you wouldn't have to. That's what Jesus did for us when there was no way. And it's not just the physical suffering. It said that God turned away from Jesus. What, what, is, what does hell look like? It looks like separation from God. And when God turned away from Jesus, Jesus cried out on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Because of the pain that he felt. That's the God that we serve. The God who gave anything for us. All right, I'm sorry. I'm going to calm down. <laughs> we, we, we sang that song, Is He Worthy? It ends correctly. Yes! Yes, he is worthy. That's the only answer there is. There's no question. So, okay, I'm going to end with this. We have this, we have this um, what we call the 5G process here. And if you've never been here before and you hear it and you're like, oh, well, that's like your 12-step program. Or, or maybe it sounds like this little factory where you take the ugly sinner and you put them in and then they come out a beautiful Christian. Um, <laughs> But that's not really what the 5G process is. The 5G process is us trying to put into words what happens when you become a Christian. When you find salvation in God, you are what we call a genuine Christian. That's the first G. But the thing is, once you have this salvation, you're like, I need to know more. I need to know why God would die for me. This is not normal. I need to know more about this God. And you become a growing Christian. And that's the second G. And then once you know more about God and you know everything he gave me, you're like, I got to give something back. And, and to go back to David, he, taught, he, he volunteered in the youth here for seven years. And then when they ended up going to a different church, they had no youth. He taught the two to five-year-olds because he said, Somebody needs to know about this. 
I think I'm getting my, I'm, I'm getting mixed up here, sorry. So, okay, we got genuine, growing, right, giving. So David became a giving Christian because he's like, I got to give back. I need to give something for everything that God gave me. And as you start to give back, you're like, you know, other people need to know about this. This isn't, I can't keep this to myself. I got to go tell somebody. And you become a going Christian. And then you're doing all of this all for the glory of God. And that's, that's the fifth G, all for the glory of God. So it's this, this description of what happens to us when we know this God and when we love him. And so... We're starting a new class called DB Life. It used to be called Game of Life. If you're new here, if you've never been to it, I recommend going to this class. I was a Christian for 20 plus years before I came to this church. And in that class, I would say there wasn't much that they taught that I didn't already know. But when he packaged it up, when, when you package up the gospel and present it to somebody in a clear way, it is devastating. You cannot go back from anything else. And going to this DV Life class, it's like drinking from the fire hose of the gospel. You know, it's like you just put your head here, you take the fire hose, and you just turn it on, and you're like, whoa! Okay. So anyway, you know, it was a good class for me is what I'm trying to say. It, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you're further along than I was when I took the class, and, and you won't be like, oh, it's a great class. But anyway, but we are starting it this week. If you've never been to it, I recommend you sign up. It is such a good class to, to just hear the gospel presented in that way, because it's not just hearing the gospel. It's not just, here's the gospel, here's what we believe, but it's also, now here's how you go out and spread that. Here's how you go out and be that to somebody else. Okay, we're... we're we're, uh, we're running along here. All right, we're done. We're done. I just want to stop and pray to close us. And I want to offer the opportunity. If you have never accepted Christ, then you can silently pray along with me this prayer. And, and, and I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to end. And I'll be up here to answer any questions. And if you're like, Luke, I want to tell you all this stuff you got wrong. Frank is going to be right out in the lobby. So that's where you go for that. All right, so we're going to pray. Lord, we thank you for everything that you are to us, for revealing who you are to us, for not leaving us wallowing in darkness and muck and mire, but you came and you lifted us out into your glorious bright light to give us the life that we didn't have. And if, if you've never given your life to Christ, then you can just pray this silently with me. Lord, I accept your salvation. I accept that there is no way back to you that I can work out on my own, that I need you, that you are the only thing in life that satisfies. Come into my life and be that Savior in life for me. Come into my life and let me live for you. Lord, I ask this, we ask for just a blessing on the people here that as they go out during their week, they would shine the light of Christ and have the meaningful life that you called them to have. Lord, that they would be your love and your grace and your mercy to everyone that they meet. Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus and we believe it and we say amen. Thank you. God bless.